0: Churches were filled for two years across the entire nation. Over 100,000 converts were added to the church worldwide. Use of alcohol dropped by 50%, resulting in bankruptcy of many taverns. Crime was reduced to the point that judges in many jurisdictions were presented with white gloves, signifying no crimes of violence to be tried that day. In various communities, police became unemployed because they were no longer needed. In the coal mines, mules refused to respond to converted miners who began treating the animals with respect and stopped using foul language to prompt them forward. Those are just some of the highlights of the 1904 Welsh revival that literally spread all across the world. And when news of the Welsh revival reached America, there was a similar response. Pastors gathered in various conventions to prepare for the coming awakening. In Philadelphia, Methodists reported having 6,101 new converts. The pastors of Atlantic City churches claimed there are only 50 unconverted adults left in that city. On a single Sunday in New York City, 364 people received a membership and 286 were converted to Christ in one day. The arrival also swept through the south. First Baptist Church in Paducah, Kentucky added over 1,000 people Within a couple of months. Across the Southern Baptist Convention, baptisms increased by 25% in the Midwest. Methodists said uh, we have never seen this as the greatest revival in our history. Every store and factory in Burlington, Iowa, closed to allow employees to attend prayer meetings. When the mayor of Denver uh, proclaimed a day of prayer in that city, churches were filled by 10 o'clock. At 1130, every place of business in the city closed as 12,000 gathered for prayer meetings in downtown theaters and halls. Every school in town, the Colorado State Legislature, had been closed down for the day. In the West, meetings attracted 18,000 people in attendance. By midnight, the Grand Opera House in Los Angeles was filled with drunks and prostitutes seeking salvation. In Portland, Oregon, the entire city virtually shut down between 11 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. for noon hour Prayer meetings. There is nothing, nothing comparable to a genuine movement of God known as revival. The Bible teaches clearly and over and over that God wants to revive his people. He wants to breathe a fresh wind into his church and a fresh encounter. But unfortunately, the concept of revival is often misunderstood. Revival is not a series of meetings in the spring and fall. Revival doesn't come with someone who travels around the country in an RV. Revival is not an emotional service where people are caught up in some kind of static experience. Revival is not something that happens only under the fabric of tents, by sitting on crates or on folding metal chairs. The biblical definition of revival is a renewed interest by the people of God after a period of indifference to... Or decline. Revival is not an evangelistic crusade, although we certainly celebrate the merits of that. Revival is for the people of God to return to Him after a period of indifference or decline. It's God's people turning from idols and complacency and pursuing with a new passion the one who desires to be the center of our lives. Well, this morning we're going to start a new five-week series called Revive Us Again. In the State of the Church uh, 2012 message, I talked about revival for about seven or eight minutes at the end. And I just kind of hit the highlights for a few minutes in Psalm 85, uh, which is a prayer for revival. And so uh, I really want to dig in there and start where we left off uh, a little over a year ago. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning uh, to Psalm 85, because Psalm 85 is not just a prayer for revival. It contains some incredible principles about when God sends revival. So we're going to look this morning at verses 1 down through verse 9 in a message entitled Hope for Dry Bones and Dusty Souls. Well, this morning, we're going to spend most of our time uh, kind of of identifying what what does revival look like and what happens and what precedes revival and what's the end result of revival uh, from a biblical perspective. Because, again, I think the word revival has all kinds of connotations about there's something that's weird and all these weird manifestations or it's an it's a dated thing. It's something they used to do back in the 50s or 60s. Uh, But the problem is revival goes back so much further. that it goes back for a couple thousand years. When God would continually pour His Spirit out on His people as they returned Him after a period of indifference or spiritual decline. We'll look a few weeks uh, at, at what uh, what invites revival or what, what conditions are usually present before God sends a revival. And then we'll wrap it up in week five with a message simply talking about why does revival tarry? If we see it over and over in Scripture, if we read accounts of it throughout history, if we know that God wants to pour out His power on His people, then why does revival tarry? Terry in our lives. And so, uh, let's look here this morning at beginning in Psalm 85 uh, verses 1 down through verse 9 this morning as we discover hope for dry bones and dusty souls. Verse 1, Lord, You have been favorable to Your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of Your people. You have covered all their sins, Selah. You have taken away all Your wrath. You have turned From the fierceness of Your anger, restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause Your anger toward us to cease. Will You be angry with us forever? Will You prolong Your anger to all generations? Will You not revive us again? That Your people may rejoice in You. Show us Your mercy, Lord, and grant us Your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people and to His saints, but let not them turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Psalm so 85 here, just to give you an idea of the context that's taking place here. Psalm so 85 is written right after the return of the Israelites from Babylonian Captivity. God was faithful in his promises of restoration to them. But on the other hand, they were returning to a homeland that had been devastated by the Babylonian invasion. And so that's the context specifically of when this psalm is written. However, anytime we look at the Old Testament, the challenge is this. Is not to get caught up in the specifics of the context and to claim promises that weren't meant for us, but to take the general principles that apply during any time period to people living in covenant with God. And so as we do that, we find some principles of revival that transcend time, that transcend people group, that are solely connected to what God wants to do all throughout history and uh, discover some of those principles here this well the first off we see in discovering what, what revival looks like and trying to get a handle on it from a biblical perspective the well, first principle we find is simply this is that revival is a grace gift from a sovereign god it is a grace gift from a sovereign god now some of you uh, your background this may astound you you cannot schedule revival do you understand that and some of you grew up in a culture where you had spring meetings and fall meetings. Anybody go to a spring or fall revival in the history of your life? Yeah, most of you, right? But the problem is this. Lots of us have been to meetings, but revival never came. And people pulled up in RVs. They unloaded the thing. and uh, but, but at the end of the meetings, listen, nothing was changed. There was no reconciliation of broken relationships. There was no people who were converted. There was no repentance. There was Listen, the presence of God was never felt, despite the fact that we scheduled some meetings in the spring or the fall. Because revival is a grace gift from a sovereign God. You cannot schedule it, you cannot work it up, you cannot manufacture it apart from the sovereign God choosing to send it. Psalmist refers exclusively to the actions of God in verses 1 through 3, and then again in verses 5 and 6. Listen to all these descriptions God showed favor, God restored, God forgave. God covered, God set aside and God turned over and over. It's a sovereign God choosing to pour out his presence and his power among his people. Look at verse six alone. Will you not revive us again? In other words, Lord, we can't schedule this. Well, Lord, we can't can't work this up. God, if it's going to happen, it's going to come from You as a grace gift from a sovereign God when You choose to pour it out on Your people. So God, will You in Your sovereignty, will You revive us again? Is the prayer of their hearts. And so over we see the psalmist clearly ascribing revival to the supernatural work of a sovereign God as a grace gift among the people of God. It's not an evangelistic crusade. They're not saying, God, would your your spirit come in here and convert all these heathens that live around us, right? They said, no, 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 God, we as your people, we need to be revived. We've been drifting. There's been a period of indifference or decline in our spiritual lives. God, we need you to pour out your spirit. Will you revive us again, O Lord? Dale Felsenhouse, who started the largest revival-focused ministry in the country, Life Action Ministries, talking about the revival has to come from God, said this in a book he wrote called, A Blaze With His Glory. He said revival is a supernatural action that comes sovereignly from the hand of God. Revival is the reviver himself in action in the inner life of his church. No one can bring revival or manufacture its results. We can pray for it, weep for it, repent of our sins, and wait on God to move, but we cannot make revival happen. That's what he's describing here. In the first verses here in Psalm 85, in verses early on, verse 3, he's saying, Lord, you've done it before. Lord, in the past, you've shown favor to your people, and then in verses four through seven, basically it's saying, "Is oh Lord, if you would do it again, pour out your spirit like you did in the old days, so God, God, do it one more time for your people as we turn our hearts back towards you." Let me just list and briefly explain some conditions that usually precede revival. Because hear me this morning, that while revival is a grace gift from a sovereign God, we see over and over God being the initiator in Psalm 85. That does not mean that we sit back passively and hope, well, just if God sends it, I'll be here and I'll receive it. No, no, no. There are some things that God, should He choose to send it, you and I can do to position ourselves to receive it and experience a genuine movement of the Spirit of God. So we see those things here in the text and they don't guarantee revival, but hear me this morning. If we don't heed these principles that often precede revival, they don't guarantee revival, but they will almost guarantee that we won't experience it should God choose to send it. He said this over and over the Scriptures. Return to me and I'll return to you. Malachi 3, 7. In James, he says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Listen, that's not automatic. What has to happen in our own hearts and how do we position ourselves? To experience what God wants to do. A new and fresh work among us. Well, there are some things here in the text. Two things I want to look at that often precede revival. And should God choose to send it, we need to position ourselves to receive it. Principle number one is simply this. It is a recognition of the holiness of God. It is a recognition of the holiness of God. Now, when you think about God, what comes to mind? But what of His attributes do you often drift towards? Many times when we think of God, we, we're reminded of His loving kindness and His tender mercies. We're reminded of the Scripture that says not that God loves, but that God is love. In other words, we're just, we naturally gravitate towards the attributes of God's na- nature where we are the recipients and benefactors of the overflow of that. Listen, God is love. Man, I love that. God, God's loving kindness and tender mercies are new every day. Amen. Sign me up for that, right? Those are the things we drift towards because we're the benefactors. Often, I've never heard say, hey, when you, when you think of God, what do you think of? I think of His holiness. I think of His holiness. I never hear that, but listen. Over and over in the Scriptures, the most magnified attribute of God's nature in the Old and New Testament is His majestic holiness. Over and over, it's the most featured facet of God's nature. Now, why, why is it that over and over that's in the Scriptures? We see God's holiness being on display. Why is it often that we don't run towards those things? Well, I think for two reasons. Number one is this. We don't identify with it. We don't identify with it. It's so far above us and beyond us that we can't even identify with the holiness of God. And so when God said, hey, listen, I'm holy, so I want you to be holy. We're like, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know if I'm like at 50. I don't know if I'm at the 50 yard line, right? God, I don't even know if I'm in the game sometimes. It's that discouraging. And so we don't run towards that because we don't identify with it because it's so removed from us. It's fallen, sinful humanity. Here's the other reason we don't identify with it. God's holiness is the motive for God's wrath that's poured out on unrighteousness. And in my experience, we don't run towards wrath. We run away from it. And so we think of the holiness of God in some of those Old Testament stories and, and God pouring out His wrath on unrighteousness and idolatry. We, we, just, we don't naturally, but it doesn't give us the warm fuzzies. But over and over again, when God chose to send revival, it was some prophet of God standing amongst a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people standing up proclaiming the holiness of God and calling people to that standard. And they either ran the other way or they repented and turned back to God and revival poured out on the people. There is no such thing as revival apart from lifting up the holiness of God and calling people to that standard. That's why, this is just my opinion, that weak, watered down, ear-tickling, seeker-obsessed, consumer-driven, self-help Christian psychology preaching will never bring the power of God in His church. And we're so consumed with how many people show up. Hey, listen, the only person I'm consumed that shows up is God shows up when we meet. And if you try to diminish and say, well, listen, these are some challenging passes and... With that facet of God's nature, that, that's the vehicle for His wrath, His holiness. And if you preach those things, people won't come up in the seats. Listen, if you don't preach those things, the power of God won't come down when you meet. And you can't water it down. You can't diminish His holiness. Listen, you stand up and proclaim it because proclaiming the holiness of God always precedes revival because we get a clear picture of His holiness. Guess what? We realize how in contrast we stand and it brings us to brokenness. The holiness of God is exalted in every single place. And when you read through Psalm 85, you've got two conclusions. Either God is holy and pours out His wrath on unrighteousness, or God is grumpy. Alright, look at verse 3. What's it saying? Psalm 85 verse 3 says this, You have taken away all of your wrath. What's the motive for His wrath? It's His holiness poured out on unrighteousness. You have turned away the fierceness of your angry. Why is God angry? Because of sin. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will your anger prolong to all generations? Do you see that over and over? Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Why? Is God grumpy? No, no, no. God is holy. And when the people of God turn their backs on the holiness of God and chase after things that are profane, guess what? God pours out His wrath. Listen, He pours out His wrath to turn people back towards Him. Holiness of God has always exalted. Every revival in history and Scripture contained a prophet of God standing up for the holiness of God and calling people to that standing. You say, Pastor uh, Brad, you are young and, and listen, that is old school. No, no, no. Listen, it's biblical. It's the Word of God. The prophet of God standing up, proclaiming the the truth about God and calling people to the standard of God. And when that happens, revival comes to the people of God. So one of the conditions that precede revival often, listen, God has to choose to send it. But listen, one of the things that often precedes it when God sovereignly chooses to send it is a proclaiming and a high standard of the holiness of God over and over in Scripture. Here's a second thing you often see before revival comes in Scripture throughout history is this. It's brokenness brokenness. Now, brokenness is something that we try to avoid because let's just be honest, it's it's not very attractive. We don't feel very successful. We don't feel like that's something that we want to be known for. What's that person like? Well, there's there's the broken person. We look at it as a weakness in our culture. But can I tell you this? God finds brokenness incredibly attractive. Incredibly attractive. Where do you get that from? Listen, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. Listen, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now, why is it so attractive to God? Because listen, when I come to the place of brokenness before a holy God, and I'm truly broken before the Lord, then guess what? It, it, all the pride in me just it was pushed to the margin brokenness dissolves me of all pride, and when I come to a place where there's no pride and total humility, then guess what? I'm in a position where God can finally use me. God can finally speak to me. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And while that may not be attractive in our culture, and most people aren't pursuing after, guess what? Brokenness is beautiful in the eyes of a holy God. What does that look like? I mean, practically. I mean, how does that behave? I mean, she just one the same things say, be broken or someone gets involved in sin. And one thing, you know, listen, are you broken about your sin? Well, I think so. What, is it? Listen, what does that look like? This is not an exhaustive list, but we find two principles or two fruits of brokenness here in this passage. The first one is simply this. One of the fruits of brokenness is confession. It's confession. The Israelites have become enslaved to idolatry while in Babylon. And so in verses two and three, it expresses the confession of their sin. Look at verse two. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Now, there used to be a three letter word that started with S that we didn't talk about in church. Now there are two of them. Do you see what's happening here? There's no situational ethics being proclaimed. There's no, I, God, I knew this was your standard, but in light of the circumstances, this is what we had to do. To, I mean, just, you know, God, you understand. Here's my favorite. God knows my heart. He does. And it's wicked and deceitful. That's how he describes it. It's confession. It's coming before. Listen, confession is agreeing with God about my sin. It's, not, it's such an easy concept. We understand it theologically, but it's so hard to get people there. Because often, listen, again, we want to play situational ethics. Well, I know it's wrong, but we're given the circumstance that's the only option out. Listen, sometimes the only option is to suffer for the sake of righteousness, not to choose sin as a way of escape. Confession is a natural overflow of brokenness. Listen to some of the biblical examples of confession that preceded some of the greatest revivals ever recorded in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, they were defeated by the Philistines. And the reason was because of this. is because they thought, hey, we're in a tight spot, and so let's go get the magic box, the ark, and we'll, we'll march the ark out here, and the power of God will flow from the ark. And, and so we'll just listen, bring the box out, magic box, and God will defeat the Philistines, and, and we'll be fine. That's not what happened at all. Listen to what happened. Eventually, revival came under Samuel, but not until these words were uttered in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Samuel said this, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered together at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and they fasted the day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. That confession preceded an incredible revival under Samuel. Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles revival. Incredible revival recorded under Hezekiah and 2 Chronicles. But before God could pour out his spirit and people return back to God, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 records this confession. It says, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who trespass against the Lord. Listen, no situational ethics, just calling it like it was. No justification. No, 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 no. Well, God doesn't what... want. No, no, no. They trespass. Violated the standard of God, trespassed before the Lord, and that confession was there, and God poured out an incredible revival under Hezekiah, under Ezra the scribe, and Nehemiah the governor. Leadership, a significant revival took place after their seventy years in exile. That was recorded in Nehemiah chapter eight. But again, before God could pour out a spirit of revival in that church, listen to one that happened before that. Now, on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fast fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Sign of brokenness. And then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners. Listen, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Listen, they were so broken about their sin that they went back in the family closet and got all those skeletons out. And so, Lord, we've sinned and we confess our sin. Listen, my mom and my dad and my grandparents, I confess all their sin as well. Because listen, when there's brokenness, there's no holding back. There's no managing my sin. There's no rationalizing. There's no situational ethics. It's confession before a holy God is one of the fruits of brokenness. Confession is crucial because you will never experience revival apart from brokenness. And confession is one of the fruits of brokenness. Here's the second fruit of brokenness uh, found in verse 8 is this, it's repentance. Repentance. Now, we're only going to talk about it for just, just a second this week because that's where we're going next week. Is one of the things that precedes a genuine revival from God. But look at verse 8. And I will hear what, what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. You, you get the picture here? He says, hey, listen, you were pursuing folly, idol worship. You were pursuing that way. But now I will hear what the Lord wants to speak. I'm going to turn and let not them turn back to folly and chase after idols again. That's all repentance is. It's a turning away from my sin and turning towards God. And you ask me, is a person broken about their sin? I'll say have they confess or are they trying to explain it away. Is a person broken about their sin? Are they repentant? What do you mean? Do they want to leave that sin and pursue the righteousness of God in their life? Well, not really. Well, listen, there's no brokenness before the Lord if there's no brokenness, there's no change. And if there's no change, what are we doing? Repentance. Even though revival is a grace gift from God by a sovereign God, listen, there are some things we can do to position ourselves to receive it should God choose to send it. So principle number one, revival is a grace gift from a sovereign God. Principle number two, revival is not to be pursued. Now, some of you are thinking, well, then what in the world are we doing for the next five weeks? Are you trying to lead us off the cliff? You're, you're, you're going to preach on We've got a whole series called Revive Us Again. And you're telling me that revival is not to be pursued. Now listen, this is incredibly important in understanding true revival. So if you're listening this morning, say amen. Good. We are not to hunger and thirst for revival. We are not to hunger and thirst for a movement of God. What we are to hunger and thirst for is not the uh, movement of God, it's the God of the movement. We're not seeking revival, we're seeking the reviver. Listen, the whole pursuit is not some movement and the overflow and all the stories. The pursuit is the God who sends it. And so many times, I people you know, just, oh, listen, we're pursuing these, these things that will happen, all these things and all these uh, miracles and signs and what, listen, it's listen, no, 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 listen. A pursuit is not of signs and wonders. A pursuit is after the sovereign God who sends a revival. And if you get caught up in the idea that I'm pursuing some kind of movement from God, then listen, you're no different than Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. He wanted all the miracles, but he wanted nothing to do with the miracle worker. Acts chapter 8 says a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. And they listened close to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. Happy ending, right? And he began following Philip wherever he went, he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed, but verse 18 says there wasn't a happy ending, because verse 18 says this: "When Simon saw the spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy their power. He said, "Let me have this power too, so that I may lay hands on people, they receive the spirit." But Peter replied, Peter, in his passive nature, said this, "May your money be destroyed." For you, thinking God's gift can be bought, you have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Listen, if we're seeking after the science and the wonders and the movement and all the things associated with that, the overflow of that, listen, we're no different than Simon the Magician. We're not to be pursuing revival. We're not to be pursuing these stories. and these. Listen, we're to be pursuing the Reviver Himself. People seeking the sensation... Rather than the sovereign God. And all these things. Listen, I, I've seen so many things. Read so many accounts. People ro- rolling around in the aisles and barking like dogs and, and laughing uncontrollably. You know what the Bible says? That when people generally came into the power and presence of God in Scripture, they were paralyzed by His presence. You know the response wasn't rolling around now. You know what the response was when people encountered the holiness of God in Scripture? Wasn't rolling around barking or laughing? You know what it was? It was face in the dirt. It was, "Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips." It was when an angel encountered. What was it, "Oh, dude, this is cool"? No, no. It was, "Fear not." Over and over again, we see that picture in Scripture, Isaiah chapter six. "Woe is me! I am undone." Now, the word undone in the original language is also translated lost. In other words, when I come into God's true presence, I don't even know how to respond. I, even to, to respond. I can't even manufacture something because I don't even know what to do. I'm that lost. In the New Living Translation is translated doom. In the original Hebrew, the word undone, it means perish or Destroyed. That when I come to that place, when I encounter God's presence, I'm destroyed in His presence. I'm doomed. I'm lost. I don't know what to do. The only response I know is face in the dirt. And anything that happens under the banner of revival that draws attention to me and away from God is not a genuine movement of God. Because when people in Scripture came into the power and presence of God, they were paralyzed by His holiness. And they had tried the substitutes, and they, they, listen, they had pursued idols. They had tried the substitutes, but they realized they were cheap substitutes for the real things. And so hear me this morning at the beginning of this series. I'm not telling you to pursue revival. Let's not pray that all these things would happen. Let's pursue the reviver himself. That's when revival comes. When I pursue the reviver himself. When I pursue pursue the sovereign God, not the signs and wonders. Is the true revival breaks out. Principle number three is this. Principle number three. Idolatry is revival's greatest obstacle. Idolatry is revival's greatest obstacle. The sad part of Israel's history was the continual chasing after other gods. That's what the second part of verse 8 talks about turning back to folly. It's over and over again. God, You are wonderful. We're going to go over here for a while and dabble in which all these pagan worship practices. But oh God, we've sinned and forgive us. Oh, God, listen, I can't believe we've got... And God pours out His wrath on their iniquity and they turn back towards God. And God, You are wonderful. We will never leave You again. And right back they go. Over and over, pursuing idols of the heart. The folly being described in verse 8 was the pursuit of pagan worship and idolatry. Aaron molded calves to be worshipped at Mount Sinai according to Exodus chapter 32. Solomon permitted his wives to build temples to their idols. First Kings 11 Jeroboam erected golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Second Kings 12 Ahab's wife Jezebel led the northern kingdom into idolatry. First Kings chapter 16 Manasseh, king of Judah, filled Jerusalem with idolatry according to Second Chronicles chapter 33. It's the story over and over and over chasing after idols. Now, when did that stop? When they came to the place and recognized the holiness of their God. Where do you get that from? Verse 9, look what it says. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Surely His salvation is near to those who finally take serious His command. You shall have no other gods before Me. That's the people He'll spare from His wrath. Surely the people who get serious about the idols of their heart and push them to the side, He'll restrain His wrath from them. Is what verse 9 is talking about now. Now, listen, my guess is most of you don't have carbon images in your house you're bowing down before. I remember one time uh, Tasha, we first got married. She, I don't know she was 12, 13 years old. I remember exactly how old she was, but uh, she, she just took a job uh, doing some cleaning and uh, she went to these people's house and they were uh, from a different country. And so they literally had these statues and, and these things they worshiped in their house. And uh, she, she didn't know any different. And so in one of the statues, there was a little bowl or a plate and there was all these, uh, what, what she perceived to be crumbs and ashes. And so Tasha just cleaned it off and cleaned it up and they came back. They were mortified. Mortified. Because they had taken uh, her food. They taken the idol's food they had offered up as a burnt offering. So, so my guess is that's not the case with most of you. And if that is the case, uh, call Tasha. She'll come over and take care of that, okay? But listen. But, but here, here, here's my experience. Listen. Listen. While they may not be carbon images, they bear just this grip on our heart. While you may not be able to reach out and touch them, I promise they can grab a hold of you. And there are all kinds of idols that flew up our and uh, status. I want to be somebody. Sexual gratification that, that dominates my heart and just grips that I'm going to pursue it at all costs. You know what I've seen over and over, and it seems like it's getting worse, is the idolatry of affirmation and acceptance. I'm going to do whatever it takes for someone else to make me feel like I want to feel. I desperately need someone else to say you're attractive or you're special or you're this or you're this or whatever it is. Listen, that's an idol of the heart that competes with God for the centrality of your heart to the place where it consumes you. You'll do whatever it takes to satisfy that idol. And idolatry is revival's greatest, greatest obstacle. And how do you define, how do you know when the idol's seeds have taken root in your heart? That's a hard thing. Because when it's full-blown, everybody sees it. Oh, look at, look at the aftermath. Look at the effects. Of course there was an idol. Of course something else grabbed the affections of their heart. Listen, here's where it starts. The seeds of it start like this. It's when anything in my life, if it were removed... I, would just, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine living without it. That the thought of it not being there would cause me incredible anxiety. Listen, you know what that is? That's the seed and the base of an idol competing for the affections of your heart. Removal of idols always precedes revival. But what happens? What happens when I recognize that revival can't be worked up or scheduled? What happens when I put myself in a position though to receive it by magnifying the holiness of God in a broken and contrite spirit like Psalm 51 talks about? What happens when I get serious about the idols and the affections of my heart and repent of those things and cast them to, this, to the side? What happens? Verse 9 happens. Surely as salvation is near to those who fear Him that glory may dwell in our land. That's the outcome the outcome. That glory may dwell in our land. The word glory there in the original Hebrew language, it means heavy. It means the presence of God was heavy in that place. You ever been in a meeting like that? The power and presence of God showed up and was so heavy, you couldn't even hardly breathe. The only response was head low, face in the dirt. I've been in those meetings. Years before, Ezekiel had seen the glory cloud of God depart from the temple and never come back. Here's what I want to happen. Here's what I pray for on a regular basis. And I've been praying more intensely since I've been studying these principles. I don't want anyone to ever leave here and say this. Man, that's a great sermon. I don't want anyone to leave here and say that, that, that worship set, that was, man, that was awesome. And that stage design with like revival tent fabric and the crates, and that was so clever. The children's ministry, when did you see that themed hallway? It was just awesome. You know, listen. What my prayer is that when people leave here, here's what they say: How was it? It was heavy. The glory of God was in that place. They opened up the Word of God, and the power of God came down that place. That's what I want to happen in this place. And if that happens over and over. And over and over, you know what we call that? We call it revival. And revival is the only hope for dry bones and dusty souls. And I want to invite you to it this morning. Would you bow your heads? I wonder if you're here this morning and we talk about revival, it reminds you of a time when your heart beat a little faster for the things of God.